an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to speak to you all this morning. I have a good friend, and he claims to be a movie buff. And we went out to lunch one day. We were enlisting our favorite movies, and on my list, I included It's a Wonderful Life. And so when he finished listing his, I was stunned that it didn't make the cut. And I asked him why he didn't include it on the list, and he rather sheepishly admitted he had never seen the movie It's a Wonderful Life. I was stunned. I said, you've got, to f you've got to find a way to see it. I ran outside. There was a little, we were at a Denny's. There was a newspaper stand, and we were in California and Los Angeles. There were always these old theaters screening movies, old movies. Sure enough, I found a theater in Santa Monica showing It's a Wonderful Life. And I, I said to him, you are among the privileged. You are going to get to see this movie in a theater. You've got to go. It's, it's showing on Tuesday or Wednesday, whatever it was. So he said, all right, I'll go. I'll take my fiance. I'm sure she'll like it. Great. So I'll, I'll get back together with you next weekend. You tell me what you, th what you think of the movie. We sat down. I said, how did you like the movie? And he said, well, I thought it was a little confusing. There were these stars talking to each other. And some guy named Clarence gets wings. And at the end of the movie, this guy is getting all these presents from, it seems like, poor people, and he was accepting them rather selfishly. He said, I didn't get it. And I'm like, are you serious? So I began to explain to him why I thought the movie worked, and I started going through all my favorite scenes. Did you see the part where they're dancing at the high school over a pool, and the pool starts to open up, and they all fall in? And he, says, and he looks at me, and I can tell he's not really familiar with the scenes I'm talking about. So I started getting worried that maybe he saw the wrong movie. And so we keep talking, and, and I asked him, did you see this scene? Did you see that scene? No, we didn't see that. I'm looking at his fiance. You don't remember this either? And so finally she spoke up, and she admitted in a kind of embarrassed voice, well, we actually got there a little late. And I said, a little late? Well, how exactly what do you mean by a little late? She said, I think we cost, he got lost. <laughs> I'm like, you got lost? I'm like, in Santa Monica, we know Santa Monica well. He didn't want to admit to me that he couldn't find his way to the theater. But in fact, he got lost, and he, he, I said, well, how much of the movie did you see? And she said, I think the last five minutes. I'm like, well, of course the movie was confusing to you. If anybody were to hear that you went into a movie theater five minutes before it ended, sat down, and then complained that it was confusing, anybody would say, you're out of your mind. Because we understand, in order to understand a story, you've got to watch it, you've got to read it, you've got to know it from the beginning. Right? Nobody sits down with a book by Mark Twain, opens up to the last few pages, and then complains that the book doesn't make any sense. Right? That the character development is just too confusing. Right? But Everybody does that with the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is at the back of the Bible. And so what do people do? They turn to the last few pages of the Bible. They look at this book that describes beasts and marks of the beast and dragons. And they complain, it doesn't make any sense. All right? Well, yeah, there's a reason the church has put the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible. The church expects that we've read all the other books in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. That's how we read the Bible when we come to Mass. We read the Old Testament first and then the New Testament, right? 
we're going to be looking at a passage here in Revelation 20 that is confusing and perplexing to a lot of people. And there are all sorts of different interpretations out there about what it means. But I'm going to suggest to you that if you really want to understand the book of Revelation, you've got to read the Bible from the very beginning. You've got to understand how the book fits into its larger, how the book of Revelation fits into its larger canonical context. You've got to understand how it fits into salvation history. All right, and so we're going to be looking at Revelation 20 against that backdrop. But before we begin, in order to make sure that we start well, and hopefully we'll end well too, by a prayer, uh, I think it'd be good for us to turn to the Lord and ask him for guidance as we seek to hear his voice speaking to us in sacred scripture. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We know that you have come to bring in the kingdom. You come to offer us an invitation to the kingdom of heaven. Through the sacraments of the church, Lord, we understand that you are reigning in this world, in our hearts, over sin, that in you we have the victory over the devil who is bound and chained. Lord, help us to understand how the book of Revelation teaches us about this truth and help us to learn how to better explain it to other people. Most importantly, Lord, help us not understand, not only to understand it, but to put it into practice in our lives as well, because every new thing we learn about you, Lord, is a new reason to love you. And we pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I just noticed that that clock is not counting down, and I didn't bring my watch up. Is it possible to borrow somebody's watch so that I can make sure I end on time and not destroy the entire conference schedule for the day? Thank you. I appreciate it. I left my clock, my phone, in my bag, and I don't have to rifle through it. All right. Thank you. Very good. All right. Revelation chapter 21 through 3, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be loosed for a little while. What is going on here? In the book of Revelation, we hear that the devil is going to be bound, or the devil is bound for a thousand years. This is the passage that describes the millennium. In Latin, the word, uh, it, the word millennium comes from the Latin term, the Latin words mille annus, literally a thousand years. The Greek term used in the book of Reve Revelation is chilioi. There are all sorts of different interpretations of this passages. And if you are you know, familiar with non-Catholic Christians, if, you're, if you have friends who are Protestants, you may recognize the following terms. Premillennialism, postmillennialism, amillennialism. 
Different, interpretation, uh, interpretation, uh, different interpretations stake out different claims here, and they identify themselves with these titles, premillennialism or the pre-mills. Basically believe that what's going to happen is Christ is going to set up a literal kingdom on earth. That for a thousand years, Jesus is going to reign on earth Really, in history, some people today link this with the rapture. So the saints are taken up into heaven, and after this happens, uh, what is ushered in is this panacea, this kingdom of God on earth. Uh, it's talked about in many different books. John Rice has a book, a famous book, Christ's Literal Reign on Earth. It was published in 1939. And he says, it is clear that Christ will come and set up a literal kingdom on earth and rule from David's throne in Jerusalem. This view has been very influential in Protestant circles. People like Pat Robertson subscribe to this view. And it's why many evangelicals believe it's really important for us to support Israel not just spiritually, but politically. We need to get the conditions right so that Jesus can come and set up that earthly kingdom. And I don't understand what that would exactly look like. Would Jesus show up at the UN now? He's, you know, uh, representing the nation of Israel. I don't know. From reading the gospel accounts, people don't seem to recognize him. That might be confusing, you know. Jesus shows up at the UN. Who are you? you know, wouldn't, maybe they wouldn't even know who he is. I don't know. But that is certainly one very popular view, the pre-mill view. The next view is called post-millennialism. And you could call this view optimistic. Uh, the millennium, the, this, this view says that the millennium, the thousand years, is symbolic. And what it's referring to is the way the gospel is going to spread throughout the world until finally the world itself is Christianized and then Christ will come back in glory. I remember a priest explaining to me how he thought the end of the world would come. He said, I know what's going to happen. Everybody on earth is going to embrace the religious life. Every single person will become a, a brother or a sister, will take the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. The gospel will finally be spread throughout the world. We will finally overcome the forces of evil in this world, and the world will end because nobody will have any more children. And at that point, that will be the end of time. This man possessed the theological virtue of hope. <laughs> All right. The next view is amillennialism. Amillennialism is the view that the millennium is symbolic. And that the thousand years in which the devil is chained and bound represents the time between Christ's first coming, his incarnation, and his earthly ministry, his ascension into heaven, and the second coming of Christ. And this was a view that was known to the early church. Uh, Origen, St. Augustine made this view especially uh, popular. Is the book of Revelation describing an earthly reign of Jesus Christ on earth? Well, what a lot of people recognize is the language is largely symbolic. When you read the book of Revelation, you have to read it the way it was meant to be read. You can't read it in a literal, historical way, necessarily. You know, when I was a kid, I remember taking the book of Revelation off my parents' bookshelf, opening it up and hearing how it described beasts come up out of the sea. And I may have mentioned this yesterday, but I thought, how cool is that going to be, right? Finally, we're going to get that climactic battle between Godzilla and Mothra, you know? I've been waiting for this all my life. Uh, as cool as that would be, the book of Revelation is describing something even more spectacular, right? And so 
we have to read it the way it was meant to be read. And in fact, when you look at Revelation 20, you'll see that many of the images are symbolic. They're not meant to be taken in a literal way. What is this key that the angel brings down from heaven? Is there an actual key in heaven? I mean, does angel, does angel Gabriel go over to Michael and say, I'm sorry, have you found my keys? <laughs> I lost them in my robes, you know. Uh, is there some actual chain that is forged by some supernatural fire, you know, as the ring was made in the fires of Mordor in the Lord of the Rings or something? Is this chain some supernatural metal that's actually strong enough to chain the supernatural or this spiritual being Satan? Well, no, we understand that it's symbolic. What about the bottomless pit? Well, as much as my mom would tell me when I was a teenager that I was a bottomless pit, I don't think this passage is talking about me, right? So the bottomless pit is also symbolic. Is there some actual bottomless pit on planet Earth that the devil gets thrown into? No, the imagery, again, is spiritual. In fact, Jesus teaches in the Gospel of John, my kingdom, he says to Pilate, is not of this world. My, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight that I might not be handed over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. <coughs> Excuse me. Can I get some water? <coughs> the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Okay, great. The Catechism of the Catholic Church explains... What is going to happen at the end of time? And if you have never read this section in the Catechism, I encourage you to check it out. Catechism number 676 explains that the Antichrist's deception is all, uh, already begins to take shape in the world every time the claim is made to realize within history that messianic hope, which can only be realized beyond history through the eschatological judgment. The church has rejected even modified forms of this falsification of the kingdom to come under the name of millenarianism, the idea that Christ is going to have a literal reign on earth, especially the intrinsical, intrinsically perverse political form of secular messianism. So God's ultimate victory over the devil is not going to take place simply through politics, right? It's not going to be realized in the course of history, but only with the final judgment. What about the view of my friend, the priest friend of mine, who said, well, you know, eventually we will overcome. We just have to, you know, hold out long enough, but sooner or later everybody's going to embrace the gospel, and the church is going to win out at the end of time. Well, the church has taught this, Catechism 677. You might say it's a pessimistic view, but I think it's more of a realistic view. The church says, uh, the church will enter into the glory of the kingdom only through this final Passover, final Passover of tribulation, when she will follow her Lord in his death and resurrection. The kingdom will be fulfilled then not by a historic triumph of the church through a progressive ascendancy, but only by God's victory over the final unleashing of evil, which will cause his bride to come down from heaven. Revelation 13, 20, 21, uh, 2 through 4. God's triumph over the revolt of evil will take the form of the last judgment after the final cosmic upheaval of this passing world. So how do we make sense out of this description in Revelation 20 of the devil being bound for a thousand years? How do we figure out what John's getting at? Well, I would propose to you that in order to understand it, we really need to grasp the Old Testament allusions, the, the, this, the references to salvation history that are found in Revelation 20. Many of our non-Catholic friends will tell us that it has to be a literal reign, 
on earth because God promised this to David. They'll point out in 2 Samuel 7 that God said that David would have a kingdom and that this kingdom would be given, be on earth. So therefore, in order for this promise to David to be fulfilled, we have to have that earthly political reign of Jesus. As I'll explain in a minute, I think we can understand that Jesus fulfills that in an even more profound way than simply through an earthly fulfillment. Uh, let's look at that promise, by the way, in 2 Samuel 7. God says to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for a thousand years. Oh, wait, that's not what it says. Forever. All right, forever. So how does God fulfill this promise to David that his son would build a house for his name and that he would reign for a thousand years. Well, I think that's what Revelation 20 is helping us to look at and understand, all right? Uh, how do we interpret Revelation 20? Again, we got to understand the Old Testament context, and when you look at the passage closely, you'll see all sorts of allusions that are especially linked to the Davidic covenant, all sorts of images that are tied to the Davidic covenant. It's interesting. It describes the devil being bound for a thousand years. Isn't it, is it just a coincidence? Isn't it remarkable that David begins his reign in 1000 BC? For 1000 years before the coming of Christ, there is a kingdom that is really established on earth. The devil is said to be bound by this chain. An angel comes down, takes a key, and shuts him up. Well, the language here is, again, Davidic. Even within the book of Revelation, the image of a key is linked to David. Revelation chapter 3, 7. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and none shall shut, who shuts and none shall open. We also see in Revelation 9 this image of this key that is used to seal up a bottomless pit. Where does this imagery of a key come from? Well, it comes to us, as we all know, I'm sure many of you know, from the book of Isaiah, where God explains through the prophet Isaiah how a wicked official in the Davidic kingdom is going to be replaced. Eliakim is going to receive the office that Shebna was unfaithful in. And we read in Isaiah 20 this, In that day I will, call Eli I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe, and will bind your girdle on him, and will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, none shall shut. He shall shut, none shall open. In Revelation 20, we read about it angel that comes down with a key, and he shuts up the devil in this bottomless pit. Ancient readers would have understood, especially given the fact that Jesus has already been described as the one who holds the keys, right, in Revelation 3-7, the key of David, they would have understood that this imagery was referring to the Davidic kingdom. In fact, we know that the Davidic kingdom was, in a sense, uh, if you've taken that journey through Scripture series, the tool which God used, as we'll see, to, in fact, shut up the devil in the Old Testament, to curtail his activity through the Davidic kingdom, God begins to extend his covenant blessings to the world. 
But what was important about the Davidic kingdom wasn't the fact that it was an earthly political kingdom. It was the spiritual realities that were ultimately important. What was the Davidic covenant linked to? I just looked at the promise in a, a, a moment ago. God promises that the son of David is going to build a house for his name. What house is that? It's a reference to the temple. And if you've taken that JTS series, you know that the Davidic kingdom, the Davidic covenant, is inextricably linked to the temple. So it's interesting, in Isaiah 22, the prime minister, or the official that's referred to here, isn't simply described as one having political authority. He wears the long robe and the girdle. There's only one person in the Old Testament who wears those garments. You know who he is? The high priest. In Exodus 28 and Leviticus 8, we read that these are the garments the high priest wears. He's also said to be a father. Well, which which individuals in the Old Testament were known as spiritual fathers to Israel? The priests. You see this, for example, in Judges chapter 17. And so when it describes how this figure, Eliakim, is going to have the key to the house of David, is it simply talking about political authority? No. It's talking about liturgical authority. And so if you read the ancient Jewish writings, they were unanimous. The key to the house of David is a priestly image. The key to the house of David refers to the key to the temple. In fact, in the Old Testament, the idea of keys are closely linked to the temple. First Chronicles 9.27 tell us that the priests sleep in the temple and have charge over the key of the temple. Josephus, a first century historian, describes the importance of the priestly keys. Every day, the priests would gather in the temple, well not every day, but on certain days, the priests would gather in the temple for a sort of changing of the guard ceremony, where one division would pass on the priestly responsibility of serving in the temple to another division of priests. And how did they symbolize that passing on of priestly responsibility? We read about it in Josephus' writings. He says, For although there be four courses of the priests, and every one of them have about 5,000 men in them, yet do they officiate on certain days only. And when those days are over, other priests succeed in the performance of their sacrifices and assemble together at midday and receive the keys of the temple and the vessels by tail without anything relating to food or drink being carried into the temple. How is it that the priestly responsibility is passed on? through the passing on of the keys. Right? And you also see this in other rabbinic writings. I wish I had time to go through them all. The Mishnah tells us that uh, a collection of rabbinic saints dated about the 2nd century AD, uh, that the priests used to sleep with the keys of the temple court in their hand. So when you see the image of the key in Revelation 20, it's not simply talking about political authority. It's linked to David clearly in Revelation, but it's linked especially to liturgical authority. Now, it's interesting, given the fact that you have the keys linked to the temple, that we go on to read in Revelation 20 about a bottomless pit. Because if you know your ancient Jewish literature, you'll realize that the bottomless pit is also linked to temple traditions. Let me explain. In ancient Judaism, it was understood that the temple was built on a foundation stone. All right? And this foundation stone plugged up Sheol. Sheol, the, the netherworld, which is described in the Old Testament as a pit. You see this, for example, in Zechariah 4. We read about Zerubbabel, who is a descendant of David. 
he builds the temple, and we read, Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone, amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Scholars understand what this is describing. The temple building ceremony. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. So if you read ancient rabbinic writings, you'll see it was understood not only Zerubbabel, but other sons of David were associated with building the temple, consecrating the temple. Solomon in particular is said to have built the temple on, like Zerubbabel, a foundation stone. Well, if you keep reading in the Old Testament, you'll find that the foundation stone is linked to Sheol, to the bottomless pit of death. You see this, for example, in Isaiah 28. Because we, you have said we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming scourge passes through it, will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. He who believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plummet, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. So notice that Sheol is linked to the waters, but what are being, what's God's way of holding back, in a sense, the powers of death and Sheol? The foundation stone. Foundation stone of what? The local library. No. The foundation stone of the temple, right? And it's no surprise that when you read the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, 1QHA, you read that the foundation stone is linked to nothing less than the gates of death. Right? Rabbinic tradition, like I said, linked the foundation stone of the temple with the waters of the netherworld. There's this interesting story. Now, this story comes from a later source, so scholars might dispute whether or not John knew it when he book, wrote the book of Revelation. But given the fact that the book of Revelation is pulling together all these images, the key that's linked to the temple, the bottomless pit, uh, the, the binding of Satan, which I'll talk about in a minute, I think there's a real good possibility that this story from a rabbinic source preserves an ancient tradition. Uh, because very clearly in Jesus' day, these images of the foundation stone and the temple were linked together. Here's an apocryphal story about David building the temple that I think uh, is interesting, given our text. When King David came to dig the foundations for the temple around the foundation stone, he dug to a depth of 1,500 cubits. At length, he found a projecting stone, which he wished to remove. But the stone said to him, This thou canst not do. David asked, Why not? And it answered, I cover the mouth of the abyss. But David would not hearken and wished to remove the stone. And as he tried, the waters of the abyss rose in great torrents, which appeared to be about to flood the world. Then David began to sing the song of degrees, Psalm 120 to 134, from the book of Psalms, and the waters of the abyss returned to their place. In fact, even today, this idea of a foundation stone is understood, is, is, is uh, this tradition is kept alive in Jerusalem. The temple no longer stands in Jerusalem, but on its place today, you'll see a Muslim mosque. If you're familiar with the Jerusalem skyline, you recognize that golden dome. What is it called? The dome of the 
So the dome of the rock that the temple was built on, right? It's that sacred stone that the temple was built on that plugged up the abyss. You see this imagery in Revelation 20. And again, the imagery is linked to the Davidic kingdom. All right. What else? We have the binding of Satan. The binding of Satan, the angel comes down, binds him with a chain. It's interesting that binding the devil is language for exorcism in the Bible. Satan is bound. Read any uh, treatment of Matthew 16 where it says that he, uh, Peter has the authority to bind and loose. And you'll see that one interpretive option of that passage is exorcism. And Jesus is giving Peter the authority to cast out demons. Because that language of binding and loosing is linked to spiritual warfare. And so it's not a surprise. Here we have another Davidic image. David and Solomon were known as exorcists. You see this, for example, in 1 Samuel 16. We read, The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. And whenever the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hands. I think when we think of David in the Old Testament, what image do we conjure up? A king that played a guitar, that had a lot of hits, there was scandal around him. For a lot of people, I think David is little less than the Elvis of the Old Testament, you know? the king with all the hits, there's some scandal. But David was more than just a rock singer. He was more than just uh, a superstar musician. David was a man after God's own heart. And so what's amazing about David's songs is that when David sings, they actually have exorcistic, they actually have the capacity to drive out demons. They have exorcistic um, faculties, capabilities. So we read in 1 Samuel 16, Whenever the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. And of course, this ability of David to cast out demons was also known to be passed on to Solomon. In the ancient world, in the ancient Jewish world, Solomon was known as the greatest of all the exorcists. It's described, for example, in Wisdom 7.20, how the Lord gave him knowledge over evil spirits. Josephus and other Jewish writings talk about Solomon's role as an exorcist. So how does this relate to Revelation 20? Well, in Revelation 20, it says that the angel comes down and he binds Satan with a great chain. How does this relate to the Davidic covenant? Well, I'd like to point out that the word exorcism exorcist, comes from a Greek term, exorkidzo, which means to oath out. How do you exorcise a demon? With an oath. How do you cast out the demon? With an oath. Let's see now. Is there any oath attached to the Davidic covenant? Let's see here. Yes, there is. We know that God gave the kingdom of David through an oath. And because of that oath, God's kingdom extends throughout the world. For one brief shining moment in the Old Testament, we see God's reign through the son of David being acknowledged not only by Israel, but by the nations. In 1 Kings 4.21, we read, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. Sound familiar? Remember what God promised Abraham? Your descendants will be like the sand of the sea. They ate and drank and—oh, that's a typo. Well, if you drink too much, then you would be happy, I suppose. <laughs> uh, sorry about that. Um, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. 
Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days, I can't believe I did that, of his life. I'm sorry, it's kind of distracting. <laughs> we know that through this oath that God swore to David, God's covenant was extended to the nations. David even understood this. In 2 Samuel 7, David says, And yet this was a small thing in my eyes, O Lord God. You have shown me a law for mankind, in Hebrew, a Torah for Adam, a, a law for all humanity. The Davidic covenant isn't simply given for David's sake. It's not simply given for Israel's sake, but for all the nations. So really, you have in the Old Testament a case where God swears an oath, and by doing so, Satan is curtailed. His activity is held back. Right? In the Davidic covenant, through the, through the ministry of David, who's not just a king, but a priest, through Solomon's ministry, he's not just a king, but a priest, through his authority, which is found not simply in his palace, but in the house of God, in the temple, which is linked with the key, through these realities, the devil is bound. And it is interesting. The word for exorcism, exorkidzo, can also be translated putting under oath. Putting under oath. You see that in Matthew 6, uh, 26, 63. So this tradition that, that Solomon was able to put people under oath, that he was an exorcist, that he was able to cast out demons, that he had authority over the evil forces, was encapsulated in a very interesting Jewish tradition. So it was said that in Solomon's court, there was a chain that, held, that hung from a ceiling. And when people would come in to give testimony in the court of Solomon, they would hold on to this chain. And if they told a lie, guess what would happen? The link in the chain that they held on to would miraculously drop from the chain. Right? Now, that's a, a nice story, but what it does is it illustrates Solomon's ability to cast out demons, to have power over evil spirits, to discern evil spirits, right? It emphasizes his authority in a spiritual way to bind Satan. So this whole idea of putting under oath, of swearing, is linked to Solomon's authority as an exorcist. So in Revelation 20, we have an angel who comes down and he brings a key to a bottomless pit. Satan is held up in that a bottomless pit because of a chain that he is bound by. How is the devil bound in the Old Testament? I would submit to you that, in fact, ancient Jews would have understood that in the Davidic kingdom, Satan was bound for a thousand years in the ministry of the Davidic kingdom. Through the oath that God swore to David, he was, the devil was, in a sense, exercised. He was bound. He was chained, right? But it goes on to say that at the end of this time, he will be loose for a little while. Well, what might that refer to? Well, look at what happens in the Gospels. Jesus explains that in his day, which would be the end of the thousand years, the thousand years of the earthly Jerusalem, the thousand years of that earthly prototype of what is to come, Jesus explains in that time, the people were more wicked than any other generation who had ever lived. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, the wicked nations of the Old Testament which were judged by God, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it shall be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, 
Will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, get this, it shall be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Wow. Matthew 12, Jesus says, The queen of the south, that is the queen of Sheba, who came and heard the wisdom of Solomon, the queen of the south will arise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And then Jesus has something very scary to say. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he passes through the waterless places, seeking rest, but he finds none. The waterless places. Uh, there is likely a link here to the waters of Sheol and and the netherworld, but I don't have time to get into it. Verse 44, then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. So an unclean spirit comes out of a man. He's driven out. Then he returns, and he finds that man holy, sanctified. His soul is clean and swept. Then he goes, and he brings with him seven other spirits, more evil than himself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. I don't know if any of you have been involved with youth ministry. <coughs> I have been involved with this. <coughs> and you'll do retreats, and you'll see these kids catch on fire for the Lord. And you are so grateful that they've come to know God, but then they go back out into our secular culture, and you see them a year later, and they're worse off than they were before they experience that grace of conversion. And it doesn't just happen to teenagers, but to people at all stages in their life. These are scary words. It's one thing to not understand the gospel. It's another thing to hear it, to understand it, and then to not put it into practice. But look at what Jesus says. He's not simply speaking about an individual person. He says, so it shall be with this evil generation. Jesus explains that his generation is the most wicked of all the generations who have lived. If there's ever a time when it seems that Satan has been loosed for a little while, it would seem to apply to his own day. Now, of course, we understand that in Revelation 20, the imagery is pointing us not, back, not simply back to the Old Testament, but as Augustine said, to the age of the church. Right? And so it's not a surprise then that in the New Covenant, when Jesus speaks to Peter at Caesarea Philippi, he says, I tell you, you are Peter. On this rock, I will build my church. And the powers of death shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. A key. A rock. Peter has the authority to bind who is Peter? Peter is the Eliakim of the New Testament, which, by the way, is important because it shows us that Peter isn't simply a political figure. He's not just a prime minister. Peter, if Eliakim is a priestly figure, if he wears in the Old Testament the garments of the high priest, what does that make Peter in the New Testament? The new high priest, right? What, how, where do we see Peter's authority? It's not in military power. It's not in might, 
the Davidic covenant foreshadows those thousand years, foreshadows what's going to happen in the future age in the church, where Satan really and truly is bound by oaths. What's the Latin word for oath? You know what it is. Sacramentum. It's where we get the word sacraments. How is it that the devil is sealed up? I wish I had time to get into this, but if you go back and look at Revelation 20, it says that Satan is sealed up in a pit. Well, what's the word there for sealed up in Greek? It's esphragasin. It's, it's, it's the word used for sealing. For example, in Revelation 7, where the saints are sealed. The catechism explains when we receive that seal. It's in baptism that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit, right? The devil is sealed up in the Old Testament through the ministry of David and Solomon, through the worship of the temple, which brings in the nations to acknowledge the Lord, to enter in a covenant communion with him. And so in the New Testament age, in the New Covenant age, likewise, Satan is going to be bound up, but not through an earthly political kingdom, but through Peter's authority as high priestly figure, through his liturgical ministry, the church here is described as being built on a rock, like the temple was built on a rock. What is the church? It's not simply a sociological organization. It is the sanctuary of God. Right? Where do we see the ministry of the church? In the administration of the sacraments. So I'm, I'm proposing here that Revelation 20 needs to be read very carefully. It's one of the most complex chapters, I would, ex I would argue, in the whole Bible. Because on the one hand, it's talking about the Old Testament and giving us a foreshadowing of what is to come in the New Testament. But you can't really understand what's going to happen in the New Covenant unless you understand properly what happened in, in the Old Testament and the significance of David in the Old Testament. Are y'all following me here? I realize this is, this is not a talk I would normally give at a popular conference, you know? Normally I get up and I say, let's talk about Abraham, not Abraham Lincoln, you know? <laughs> right? And people are like, oh yeah, not Abraham Lincoln, you know? So a lot of times you really have to back up. But this is the ABS conference, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to just give you the meat here, right? I'm, I'm, I'm not going to pull any punches. And I think, I think if you're following this carefully, you can see just how powerful this really is. If we keep reading in Revelation 20, let me finish the chapter. Revelation 20. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom judgment was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony to Jesus and for the word of God. Who was beheaded for his testimony to Jesus? John the Baptist, who is the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. So we have here an image of those people in the Old Testament who were martyred, who foreshadows the people in the age of the church who are martyrs for God. It says, Those who had not worshipped the beast or its image had not received its mark on their foreheads, on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Wait a minute. In the Old Testament, people came to life and reigned with Christ? Well, in a certain sense, you could say that is indeed what happened. Because in the Book of Wisdom, which is talking about the martyrs of the Old Testament— it explains that the martyrs of the Old Testament do not die in vain. The Book of Wisdom explains what happened to those people who, for example, in the time of the Maccabees, suffered. Interesting, the thousand years of the Davidic kingdom is really divided up into two halves. The first 500 years, you have the earthly political power, and in the second 500 years, 
what happens is the saints have to learn that it's not the earthly political power of Jerusalem that matters, right? What matters is being faithful to God, even despite the temporal blessings. And so you see the martyrs suffer. In the book of Wisdom, it explains how the martyrs in the Old Testament, you can look in the footnote there, footnote number six, they will govern nations and rule over peoples, and the Lord will reign over them. So even in the Old Testament, in a sense, the martyrs are in an anticipatory way, not in the fullest way that we have in the New Covenant, but in some way sharing in Christ's reign. Of course, we know Christ reigns from the cross. And so through these martyrs, they reign in a way that typifies what happens in the New Testament age. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Wait, there's a resurrection? A thousand years is from David to Jesus? How is there a resurrection? Well, what happens when Jesus dies on the cross? Matthew 27 tells us in the footnote number 7. Jesus dies at, on the cross at the end of those thousand years. And we read, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Blessed and holy is he who shares in the first resurrection. This first resurrection at the time of the crucifixion, ultimately points forward, of course, to the resurrection at the end of time. Over such, the second death. What is that? Revelation 20 tells us. Brant Petrie explained yesterday. It's the lake of fire, hell. Over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and they shall reign with him for a thousand years. So it's talking about the Old Testament on the one hand, but also the New Testament. Of course, Augustine is right that the thousand years ultimately points us forward to the age of the church. And in this age where Christ reigns, those of us who are persecuted with him do go up to heaven and reign with him. Revelation 27 goes on and says, When the thousand years were ended, Satan will be loosed from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are at the four corners of the earth. That is Gog and Magog. Gog and Magog in the Old Testament are symbols of Gentile political authority that is wicked and corrupt and persecutes God's people. Let's see, in the first century, was there any political authority, Gentile authority, the Romans, Nero, who persecuted the Christians? Yes. And what will happen at the end of time? The Catechism explains. The Antichrist is a pseudo-political authority. So we have, again, a double fulfillment here of this. To gather for battle, their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, which is also a Davidic image. Solomon sat on an ivory throne, a white throne. Forgot to put the reference there. In the Old Testament. So here we have, again, Davidic imagery, but it's pointing forward to multiple fulfillments. And him who sat upon it, uh, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. How does that have first century fulfillment? Well, if you remember, the temple in Jerusalem is a symbol of what? The world, the earth, and the sky passes away at the end of the thousand years to foreshadow what will happen at the end of time when the heavens and the earth pass away, and a new heavens and a new earth replace them. 
And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Also, another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the book, by what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead in them. And all were judged by what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the writ written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Certainly this points us forward to the end of time, when there will be that ultimate judgment. But make no mistake about it, at the end of the thousand years of the Davidic kingdom, Satan was loosed for a little while, but he was cast out by Jesus. And on the cross and in his resurrection, we have that victory over the devil that will ultimately be made manifest on the last day. But listen to what Jesus says in the Gospel of John. Father, glorify thy name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it. I will glorify it again. The crowd standing by heard it and said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now, Jesus says, is the judgment of the world. Not just at the end of time. Now shall the ruler of this world be cast out, be exercised. And when I, and I, when I am lifted up, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show by what death he was to die. In Jesus' death and resurrection, we have the definitive victory over the devil. It will ultimately be realized at the end of time in the final judgment. But we need to remember, brothers and sisters in Christ, that the kingdom of God is made present on earth, not through earthly political power. We need to remember in times such as these that Victory over the devil is not simply going to be found by getting people to vote the right way. Amen? It's not simply going to be found through political activism. Victory over the devil is not going to be found in that little voting booth. Right? It's not going to be found in political conferences and committees and conventions where people gather together to elect a candidate. The victory over the devil has already been accomplished in Christ Jesus. The devil doesn't want us to remember that. The devil wants us to think that he is going to triumph, that he is in control, not just in a geopolitical sense, but in our own lives. The devil might try to convince you that you can't overpower the forces of sin, and indeed you can't on your own power, but with Christ you can. In the ministry of the church, we have the kingdom of God made present. Jesus gives Peter the keys of the kingdom. That's how he find, founds his church. But it's through the ministry, the sacramental ministry of the church, that the devil is bound. He is not conquered in the voting booth, but in the confessional booth. And he is not conquered in conventions where people gather together to hear speeches words from politicians, but he's conquered in the mass, where we come together to hear not the speech of some earthly political ruler who will likely let us down, but when we come together to hear the word of God proclaimed and receive him coming to us as the king of kings, and we say, Hosanna in the highest as he comes to us. It's tempting to sometimes think that victory is going to be won through that route. And oftentimes we think that we need to 
and don't make any mistake about it. I'm not being aphidious here. We do have to vote. We have to exercise our responsibility as citizens carefully, but we have to remember that it doesn't really matter at the end of the day who's in the White House or who's in Congress because Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And in fact, when you may get dismayed or disappointed because your candidate loses an election, remember, Jesus lost the only vote he was ever up for. I put before you a choice. Jesus or Barabbas. And the redemption of the world came when Jesus lost that election. Remember, victory is at hand. And when the devil comes and tries to tempt you by reminding you of your past and reminding you of all the ways you have fallen, and tries to convince you that there's no way that you will ever be able to free yourself from sin and from the addictions that you feel so enslaved to. When the devil reminds you of your past, you remind him of his future. Because the book of Revelation tells us what is going to happen to him. And in fact, that victory has already been accomplished in Christ. The ruler has been cast out. The kingdom of God comes to us in the Eucharist. In the Mass, we have that kingdom. And through the sacraments of the church, the devil is bound, we are sealed, and the devil is powerless. Amen? Let's end with a final prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, sometimes we become so disheartened when we look at the world around us, and it seems to us as if the powers of darkness are overwhelming us. It seems like the waters of Sheol will drown us out. Lord, help us to remember always that you are faithful, that you never let us out of your hand. Help us to always remember the words of the Gospel of, of John. The light has shined in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Lord, help us to have confidence in your word and to pro proclaim this message to the world by remaining close to the church and the sacraments, recognizing that it's only through you and through the graces that you give us in the church's ministry that we are able to overcome. Give us confidence, Lord, in our battle. And help us to remain close to you. And we ask all the angels and saints in heaven to pray for us. We say, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to speak with you all. God bless an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.